Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We've got a special episode for you today. In this episode, we'll hear Forrester's Mike Prue interview Raja Rajamanar, the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for MasterCard and the president of their healthcare business. Let's take a listen. Hey everyone, I'm Mike Pru, and I am the research director for Forrester's CMO Practice. And I am here with Raja Raja Manar, who is the chief marketing and communications officer for MasterCard, and he's also president of their healthcare business. Raja, of course, we have been talking a lot about the importance of the partnership between the CMO and the CFO, and it is well known that you've literally embedded the CFO into the marketing function. You've hired a CFO that has a dual reporting relationship between you and the overall company CFO. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what is the current status of that organizational model? The status is exactly the same. Uh, which is I have a CFO who deal reports into me and into the CFO of the company. This person uh, is fully embedded with the marketing and he is responsible for everything as far as numbers are concerned within marketing. And now he has got a very uh, sizable team, I would say. Uh, and the fact that it survived this model for eight years, it gives me a lot of confidence that we have done the right thing. And I could also see clearly the benefits coming out of this uh, arrangement. Not only has it survived eight years, it's certainly grown and flourished from, from what you're saying. And I'm curious to hear more about how the different norms and routines and practices within the marketing function have changed and evolved since you set up this embedded CFO model. So I think before we had the CFO within the marketing function, marketing was always on the back foot. Always there is a demand that comes from the CFO's organization. What have you spent? How much is left? What was the ROI? And typically these questions, I found that marketers are not always well equipped to answer in financial terms. I can tell you my brand awareness has gone up and my brand disposition has gone up and so on. But the reality is the CFO doesn't have patience for those uh, kind of metrics, which are important to marketers but it looks like fluff uh, to the CFO. So you need to really have concrete answers. And if a CMO gets uh, caught in this conversation like a deer caught in headlines, either waffling or blinking, they lose not only their credibility, but the credibility of the entire marketing function. So that is a scenario how uh, you know it used to be at one point in time. So what it did was I went straight to the CFO and said, tell me if you had a wish list, what are the things that you would like to keep a tab on as far as marketing is concerned? Because I understand your pain point that one of the biggest expense items in your PL or in a company's PL is advertising and marketing expenses. So I said, so tell me, as far as this is concerned, what are your pain points and what would you like to see? So she listed out a few. So one of those points was that marketing is not transparent with finance. So we try to hide, we are not transparent, we don't reveal the truth. And you know, for example, if you have to take any budget cut, we say I don't have any buffer. Whereas they would like to see if there is a buffer. So there's always that nagging suspicion and a lack of complete trust. And that, that's not healthy. So I said, look, marketing should be totally transparent. We have nothing to hide, we have nothing to fear. 
so long as we know why and how we are spending our money and what we are getting in return this is company's money this is not a personal money of anyone else so we said let's actually open the uh, you, know, you know entire thing so what i suggested was to have a cfo appointed who has a dual reporting into the cfo and into myself and that's how, that was the genesis and that model as i said is thriving till now it's doing extremely well now what that brings is the cfo feels that they have their person in marketing who keeps an eye out on whatever is happening and that's very helpful for them to know and to feel confident about the numbers being reported that there is no you know uh, what do you call masking of numbers or fudging of numbers or whatever what you see is absolutely validated by finance secondly in the past we would actually go and say you know we ran this particular campaign and we generated so much amount of uh, top line and bottom line growth and we used to use things like market mix models and things like that to justify how these campaigns are running. Again, there was a profound sense of suspicion uh, you know, in the CFO's minds or the finance folks' minds. So what we said is, okay, now the CFO, you drive these numbers, right? Here are the standard methodologies. If you don't feel comfortable, evolve them, develop them, but you go ahead and do it. So what happened is we modified actually our numbers and our methodologies pretty nicely to make them more robust, more credible, and almost you know, in near real time, so to speak. With the result of which, it becomes a matter of very objective discussion now, saying that, hey, I have spent $10 million, I generated $11.1 million of worth of business, and therefore it has paid for itself in X amount of time. That conversation is a mature adult one-to-one -one conversation, as opposed to one is questioning, the other one is on the defensive, on the back, now, the equation changes completely and marketing can actually approach with much more confidence and justify why they are wanting what they're wanting. So there are also times when budget cuts come. So whenever the revenues go down, what will a company do? So they cut marketing expenses because that's one of the three largest expense items in, on any PL. So in those kind of situations, in the past, it would be very difficult for folks to hold on to the budgets when the company wants to make some cuts. And it all is about emotional appeal, uh, sort of crying wolf saying that, hey, the sky is falling apart. Now, on the other hand, what uh, we have brought the discipline is we account for every single dollar and map it to which product, which geography, which priority, which segment. So we say, okay, here is the rank ordered in terms of the returns based on the past performances. These are the returns that we have got on the each dollars. Now, you tell us if you want to cut we are going to chop off the bottom uh, one third, for example, or bottom 10%. Do you want it to happen or not? The, the dialogue is very different. So I think it's, it's, a, very, it's a wonderful place for marketing to be in with gravitas uh, and with credibility. And that's I found uh, was absolutely worth it. And if I can just take a minute more, we moved from that to the next stage where two and a half years back, I, formed, I asked my previous CFO, to become my new head of risk management who is residing fully with the marketing. And I got a new CFO. Again, that he has got dual reporting to me into the CFO. Now this person, this lady now who is managing my risk, what she does is in a, in a strictest sense, it is also a finance kind of a function. What we are trying to do is what are the risks that we are facing? What is the probability that the risk will materialize? And if it does materialize, what is going to be the impact on the company? 
So she actually maps these and creates a heat map. And this is something which we circulate in the company to the management committee. So everyone is now aware, oh my God, this is the risk which is there. How do you plug the risk? Here is the plan that is available. Or if the risk does materialize, these guys have already thought through in advance what the steps have to be taken. So there is a sense of comfort and confidence, not just from the CFO, but from the CEO. And that's very important. So we are, you, know, you talk of reputational risk, data security risk, cyber security risk, privacy risk. There are so many risks, brand inter disintermediation risk, competitive risk, of course. So we plot them and we quantify them to the extent we can. And then we actually show that this is how it's going to be. And that's another thing which has, uh, I, I think, uh, done very well for us. And now it's two and a half years and it is uh, you know, very much surviving, thriving, I would say. And the company appreciates these kind of moves. And uh, as I said, this brings a level of objectivity and science to marketing. And risks, of course, have financial implications. And look, no model is perfect. You've made a lot of strides over the years with this embedded model. I'd love to hear more about some of the, the challenges that you're still continuing to work through when it comes to the relationship between marketing and finance. Absolutely. So I would give a couple of them, right? So first, what happens is because we are a large company, a global company, distributing our product across 110 countries in the world. So we got presence in 110 countries across the world. We have to do a Pareto analysis per force, which means we see 20% of the geographies account for 80% of your spend. So we tend to focus on these very tightly. Plus, when we go even in these territories, we say, 20% of the campaigns contribute to 80% of the expenses, even within these geographies. Otherwise, what's happening is, if you have to track every single campaign, the cost of monitoring the campaign is probably as much as the running the campaign itself. So we had to make some trade-offs and then prioritize, what would you really do? Uh, monitor and track and measure, and what are the things we just have to take some assumption and do dipstick studies once in a way, as opposed to doing a continuous monitoring. Uh, so that's an area, ideally, if we have the choice, I would love to do it across the board, but we don't have that kind of uh, you know, bandwidth and infrastructure to be able to do it on a constant campaign by campaign, geography, geography basis. So that's one area which is, you know, uh, I'm not too thrilled about, but the, uh, we are having approximations and assumptions. So this is one I would say. The second part of it is what happens is for most of the, uh, business as usual campaigns, you have got very good estimates and you've got actuals as well. So you, can, you have got finely refined models. But when you're talking of new launches, we still have ways to cover. Uh, in, in, your, in your book, you mentioned that there's no real excuse for uh, not getting ROI measurements out of, out of marketing anymore and really give the CEO, CFO what they want. Um, that all sounds great. And you've taken a lot of measures to help make that happen. If that's the case, why do so many chief marketing officers continue to struggle with demonstrating marketing's business value? So I would say there are uh, multiple sets of reasons. Number one, many of the CMOs are not quantitative by their training. They are creative geniuses. 
they have the sense of judgment, the aesthetic, the psychology, understanding the sociology, all those softer skills of marketing, they're extraordinary. That's where they have become CMOs. But they have not been brought up in the traditional terms. Like in my case, I'm a chemical engineer. So I'm a quantitative nerd. And so I therefore, when you throw any numbers at me, I don't sort of get frazzled. But that's not true for most of the CMOs or many of the CMOs who came in the traditional route. So when a quantitative question and a business question is asked to them by the CFO, they are struggling a little bit. And when they give marketing answers to business questions, that's where the gap comes. This is the reason why many of the CEOs and CFOs, of course, they say that it's more than 70% of the CEOs. They say that they do not have confidence that their marketing people understand the business enough to be able to drive its growth. Now, that's a, a, not a good situation to be in collectively as a marketing community, so to speak. That's number one. Number two, because particularly from mid 1990s, marketing has become very quantitative than ever before. Till that time, only credit card companies were doing a lot of quantitative analysis of you know, mailing and seeing response rates and approval rates and what the lifetime value, et cetera. But most of the other folks were not really doing that level of granular uh, you know, analysis. And when internet came in mid 1990s, uh, and when uh, uh, you know, data analytics came in a big way into the field of marketing, life has completely changed. And that's when uh, marketing, because it has become so data-driven, uh, CMOs have started struggling, uh, you know, really facing a struggle because now there is no excuse. You have all the raw data that you want or most of the raw data to come to very good conclusions and solutions. But uh, if you don't know what to do with it, you have, pro you have a problem. If you don't understand the numbers and what they mean, you don't know how credible they are. It's like garbage and garbage and it's all black box to you. That's going to be a problem. And third, how convincingly can you talk to your CEO and CFO because it's not just presenting the numbers, it's understanding the things behind the numbers, right? And, and that's not an easy thing. And uh, no, on the other hand, there are CMOs who have come from the performance side of the house. They are living the reality of quantitative marketing much, much more significantly, and therefore they are more comfortable. So what happens? CEOs retain performance marketing and parse out everything else to people outside of marketing. You've got a chief growth officer, chief revenue officer, chief customer officer. All these new C-suite uh, roles are coming in because of the lack of confidence of uh, CMO's role or CMO's performance in the minds of uh, CEOs and CFOs. What advice do you have for those CMOs specifically? What steps can they be taken to turn that around? See, I would say, uh, the problem seems much bigger than what it actually is. Meaning, if you're, an, if you're a qualitative CMO, for example, you say, look, I can't get my head around numbers because I'm not a math specialist. So the moment I see some of those kind of numbers, big numbers and spreadsheets, I get totally put off. Right? Or I, I don't really, I get scared. Now, that's true for many, many people. But the point is, in these kind of situations, uh, what I think is they are really overestimating how complex this thing is. It can actually be simplified and demystified and they can tackle it very effectively. The first thing they should do is, number one, they should have confidence that what they are doing is all substantial at their gut level to start with. 
okay, if you know that you're doing everything perfectly, even if you don't understand the numbers, that is in itself confidence inspiring to them, number one. Number two, they should at least take some basic courses in understanding business finance. Very basic courses. They don't have to be complex, just at least enough to be able to understand when something is being told. Number two, and, and to segregate what is the noise and the signal. Number three, have a CFO or a finance person, depending on the size of the organization, in your own department who will have your back. Let the person go through the numbers and explain to you. And it's not like a rocket science that you, know, you cannot understand. You will understand. If you don't understand the first iteration, you will understand it to the 50th iteration. But still, you will understand somewhere. And that's huge. Plus, I think you have to befriend your CFO. And you have to earn the trust and credibility of the person. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the CFO is responsible for you know, standing in front of the analysts and justify the numbers of the company, right? And you have to look at the person not as a adversary, but somebody who can actually help you need the help. Okay, I think the traditional position between the CFO and the CMO, because of the defensiveness of the CMOs and the lack of trust with the CFOs, it has been very adversarial. It need not be that way, it should not be that way. They have to be friend and then be very frank. Hey, I don't understand. Now, can you recommend to me or can you sit and teach me how I can understand this? Because they are peers, both of them reporting to the CEO. So tell me, understand. I don't sort of, you know, I can teach you marketing, and but I can make it so complex you don't understand, or I can simplify it so you can understand. So okay, do the same thing to me. Teach me finance, basic finance. I, I think it goes a long way. I, it shows your earnestness, your keenness. And you also say, I have nothing to hide. I don't want to hide. But this, I have the apprehensions I have. So you better take care of these and let's actually join hands and move forward. It, it's, it's not uh, what you call uh, an unsolvable problem. It, it, no, with a few little steps, like I've just uh, you know, mentioned, uh, positive progress can absolutely happen. And I think it is, it's necessary. Particularly, I can tell you into the future, as we are getting into what I call the fifth paradigm in my book, Quantum Marketing, Marketing is going to be even more quantitative, even more tech driven. When that happens, unless marketers equip themselves with data and finance, they will get hopelessly obsolete and get left behind, which they should not allow. So from that perspective as well, they have to invest today to learn. For sure. And part of that is being humble and, and being vulnerable as a, as a CMO as well. You mentioned early on in this conversation about how many CEOs and CFOs uh, see marketing as fluffy. And I know that a lot of CMOs struggle specifically around being able to justify the business value of brand marketing and brand advertising. How do you at MasterCard prove that brand marketing directly drives the business? I had my one of the initial conversations when I joined MasterCard was I approached the CFO and asked her, what watch are you wearing? Okay, it was an expensive watch. I said, why? Think about it. Because you can get the same time with lot many more functionalities with a cheap Casio watch. It'll cost you $70 or even less for that matter. And this one is costing several thousand dollars. So I said, that is the value addition of brand to start with. Sim simple consumer speak. Okay, number two, show third-party studies 
credible studies which show the correlation between brand value and business results, whether it is to attract new consumers, whether it is to uh, uh, what you call get better pricing, premium pricing, or it is to increase retention rates or usage rates. These are things which brand, which there are so many studies which are there. Internally, I have set up some studies saying that when the name MasterCard is there, what is the confidence level of the consumer? And when the MasterCard name is not there, what's the level of the consumer? When MasterCard is perceived to be positive, what is the usage of MasterCard? When MasterCard is perceived to be neutral, I don't care. I'm indifferent whether it's MasterCard or any of its competitors. If you're a neutral territory, what is the result? And those numbers are eye-opening. So I said, here are the results, but this is market research. Now let's take it to the market, test it out in two, three markets. We tested the markets and we co-created these. It's not like marketing doing their own stuff. This was co-creation. And with these, when we went and showed the results, there's confidence. Brand is not fluffy. Brand is the quintessential manifestation of everything that you don't understand, but you act based on it. It embodies the values of the company, the attributes of the company. It stands for what your company stands for. So when you say, for example, and I actually did this kind of you know, workshops, literally, or not, not workshops, but working sessions. I said, okay, think about it. What do you think of uh, a particular company, right? And then elicit the emotions. And I said, okay, now take exactly what is being done by another company, which is completely obscure with as much of functionality, as much of everything else, and that data, that's got scale. And I would not go, I would go for this because you have got confidence that this brand drives. So take element of ele element by element, and it's, it's, you have to work. It's a cultural change. It's a mindset change that you have to bring about, not going to happen overnight. And it's a combination of logic. It's a combination of theory. It's a combination of experiments. It's a combination of in-market results and third-party endorsements. And a powerful anecdote about watches as well. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of the other things I also would mention, which helped me quite a lot, is when the truth is told by an outsider, it seems more truthful than when narrated by an insider. So I would get someone like the, at that time, the CMO of Unilever, Keith Weed. I said, Keith, come and have a chat with our people. I would actually ask my peers to come and like talk to my, uh, you know, management team and uh, you know, share your thoughts. When they say, you know, brand is very critical and Unilever believes in branding and that's what they are doing very well, people start connecting the dots. Okay, so branding is important. After all, we are not the one, our guy is not the only one who is jumping up and down. It's other credible companies as well. For sure, yeah, the power of the third-party perspective is uh, is not lost. Are there um, aspects of marketing for you now in 2021 that you're still not able to quantify or reconcile? Yeah, absolutely. I told you, like, for example, uh, in some markets, we're not even tracking at this point in time because it's so expensive compared to the money that we spend in that particular market, right? Or there are campaigns which are relatively smaller. So that we are taking a certain amount of, uh, I would say, uh, a guesstimate. Right, and then trying to go with this. So that's one area which is there. The second one is some of these futuristic areas are yet to be proven. 
like if I'm getting into augmented reality, if I'm getting into uh, something like smart speakers, or I'm doing a virtual reality kind of a thing, those quantifications are still very, very preliminary, and we don't have enough scale yet to be able to authentically say, this is how much of lift I will get when I put it in virtual reality. It can be true maybe for a campaign, but it doesn't give me a construct for the ecosystem itself. Final question. Uh, you uh, talked about the fact that, look, the CFO doesn't want to hear marketing speak. Are there common phrases in marketing speak that uh, should be translated when speaking with a CFO? And, and what should they be translated to? See, it's not exactly a translation, but it is adopting a new vocabulary. CSO, CFOs talk about top line growth which is new accounts, revenues, et cetera, whatever. If you know credibly the connections between your marketing actions and the business outcomes, forget about what your marketing metrics are. Don't even bother to talk to them. They will only aggravate you know, the CFO if he or she is anxious. Talk about what the top line growth is. We have been able to drive so many leads. We have been able to drive so many qualified leads. We have been able to drive so many sales actually closing, or we have been able to drive so much of spend or revenues, whatever. This is music to their ears. And honestly, if I'm a businessman myself, I need to know what I'm spending and what I'm getting in return. And that's what the CFO and the CEO are asking for. You cannot crib about it, that oh, everything in marketing cannot be quantified. No, you cannot take that stuff. That looks very defensive and it is defensive. Uh, likewise, talk about, you know, okay, if my brand, instead of talking about my brand, my brand perception or my brand affinity or my brand love has gone up by so much, instead you say that the coefficient for the brand to be driving incremental value to the business by price premium has gone up by so much. So every basis point that my brand coefficient goes up, my revenues go up by so much because the brand drives premiumness. If that's that's the positioning of the brand, for example. So talk about the left part of it, which is how much it's driving the business, uh, as opposed to just letting the brand be as a brand. This was absolutely terrific, Raja. Really want to thank you for taking time to talk about your experiences with an embedded CFO and finance model in your marketing function. Uh, it'll surely be useful for all of the folks uh, that are Forrester subscribers. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.